This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey there, it's Robbie here. What have we got coming up for you on today's episode of the Offscript podcast? Based out of the world-renowned Texas Heart Institute, Dr. Billy Cohn is one of the top heart surgeons on the planet. He's also an inventor with over 200 patents registered for medical devices. He's an award-winning surgeon and he's taking this area of medical science into a bold new era. He's playing a crucial role in the development of the first fully functioning artificial heart. Now, it's known as the Bivacore heart. He's involved in that. And 11 years ago, he actually installed the first artificial heart in the first man who lived without a pulse. We're going to delve into this in quite a lot of detail. It's a fascinating conversation with a brilliant brain in the world of medical science. Dr. Billy Cohn in conversation with Offscript. The Big Interview with Offscript. Okay, Dr. Billy Cohn, for my money at least, one of the most impressive guys we've had on Offscript. And we've had a few, haven't we, since? We over definitely the years. have. I was utterly riveted by our one-hour conversation, which we had uh, a week or so ago. And we actually sought him out after learning of his role in placing the first artificial heart in a living human. Patient Craig Lewis. This was back in 2011. And we will discover where this science and technology is at 11 years on zone with a device called the Bivacore heart. As Dr. Cohn tells us, it was through his meeting with another precocious mind in the field that led the world of medical technology to the cusp of revolution. You hit the nail on the head there. It's this continuous flow, rotary, total artificial heart. And we, we did get a lot of lay press and a lot of attention from that first pul- pulseless patient in 2011. And that was you know, that was standing on the shoulders of giants who were standing on the shoulders of giants who were standing on the shoulders of giants. We took a lot of the work and, and I've, I've been super lucky to get to work with Bud Frazier, who really created the field of putting rotating turbines in patients. And that's that's become a huge thing. And leveraging that, he and I worked for maybe 10 years doing a lot of experiments in the animal lab, culminating in implanting that patient in 2011 must have been like Wilbur and Orville felt standing by Kill Devil Hill in, in Kitty Hawk uh, flying 852 feet. You know, it was kind of like this isn't the answer, but this is what the answer is kind of going to look like. And it got a lot of attention and we gave a lot of talks and stuff. And so that was kind of cool. But the one really important thing that came out of that is we ended up on the radar of this brilliant, brilliant young man in Brisbane, Australia, Daniel Timms, and his father, who was a, the consummate tinker. He was a plumber by trade, but it was always making stuff. And they had a big workshop and the kitchen counters and dining room table and everything in their house were covered with projects that, that his father was working on. And Daniel, uh, being uh, an inventive soul himself, was always working with his dad, but then his dad developed heart failure and had uh, several operations for valve replacements and other things, but continued to deteriorate. So Daniel decided he was going to do his PhD on trying to develop an artificial heart because in researching options for his dad, realized there was no practical permanent artificial heart. He saw the challenges and shortcomings of heart transplantation and said, I'm going to invent an artificial heart, which is just hubris. 
I mean, it's almost laughably bold, but that's what he decided he was going to do. But being ridiculously brilliant, he came up with a really novel idea that nobody else had ever had. And it was so far out there uh, that Prince Charles Hospital said, uh, no, we don't want rights to this. Uh, you take it. Good luck. You know, do whatever you want with it. They just passed up on it because they thought no one is ever going to distill this to practice. So while he was getting his PhD, Daniel's father passed away from mm -hmm. heart failure. But that only kind of solidified his determination. And according to Dr. Cohn, since then, he has been monogamously fixated on the idea of this artificial heart. Now, meanwhile, Billy and his partner, Bud, were getting a lot of press from the heartless, quote unquote, patient. That is, of course, the technical term, not the more subjective definition that we might use, who lived without a pulse. So Daniel packed up his stuff and flew to Houston to meet them. Now, Billy says they get a lot of people doing pilgrimages to the Texas Heart Institute. Institute to show them stuff and most of it is okay to bad to absolutely laughable he says so he didn't have high hopes for a 37 year old quote kid from australia who had a new design for an artificial heart and he takes his backpack and dumps his stuff out that looks like a uh, alternator that was uh, yanked out of a honda civic i mean just a bunch of crap with wires hanging off and i'm like okay go and he starts describing his vision and a half an hour into it, I start getting this creepy sensation that, oh, my God, this guy's like super brilliant. And an hour into it, I understand the brilliance of his concept. And four hours into our half hour meeting, I'm saying, look, you're not leaving Houston. We're going to bring your team here. How much money do you need? And he said, I don't have a team. My team is spread out all over the world. I said, how much would it cost to bring them here for a year to see if we can give this thing legs? Uh, he came up with a number of two and a half million bucks. I went and hit my network and got the two and a half million bucks, got the team there. In a year, this thing was looking amazing. And Bud Frazier and I started implanting them in cows. And that was nine years ago. And now we've raised $40 million, have a team taken the device all the way to design freeze, met with the FDA several times and are doing cow implants every two weeks. And this will be the first practical, permanent, total artificial heart in the world. I'll, wow. I'll bet my career on it. So key question, how does Daniel Timms's heart differ from the one that Dr. Cohn and Bud Frazier placed in Craig Lewis back in 2011? And to explain that, he said it was necessary to go back a little bit further. So you've got to brace yourself here for a bit of a biology lesson. There have been so many artificial hearts, but all of them have emulated your heart and my heart in the way they functioned. You know, your heart and my heart and every mammal's heart is really two pumps side by side. Uh, the heart has four chambers. Two of them are one of the pumps. The other two are the other pump. Why two pumps? One pump takes all the exhausted, dark red blood that has no oxygen left in it that's coming back through the veins of your arms, your legs, your intestines, your liver, your brain. And that exhausted blood comes back through the veins into the chest. And the first pump, we call it the right pump, pumps that dark blood to the lungs, the lungs rejuvenate the blood. They blow off all the carbon dioxide. They take in air. After the blood goes through the lungs, it's bright red. It's energized. 
badass blood ready to do some work. It then returns to the heart and the other pump, the left pump, pumps it out to every one of the 30 trillion cells in your body through this huge branching network of tubes called arteries. So one pump is taking the exhausted blood and pumping to the lungs. The other pump takes the blood coming back from the lungs and pumps it to the body. Okay. Every artificial heart that anybody had ever made emulated our hearts. Basically it was, they were two pumps they were flexible bags that filled with blood and then mushed down really fast. They had one-way valves on them, two one-way valves. One, a back door that let the blood into the pump. And then when the pump squeezed, that back door slammed shut because they were one-way valves. And the exit valve opened up and allowed the blood out of the heart. So the way the pumps in your heart work is those chambers that fill and empty are made of muscle. When the muscle relaxes, they fill. When the muscle squeezes, they squeeze down. Two one-way valves turn that into forward flow. All the artificial hearts used either compressed air or a mechanical piston or something to mush a flexible sac. When the sac was mushed, the blood would be forced out through a one-way valve. When the mechanism relaxed, it would fill through the back door through a one-way valve. So by squeezing, relaxing, squeezing, relaxing, squeezing, relaxing, you could create blasts of blood exiting with every squeeze. Two pumps, two mechanisms, that's how all the artificial hearts were. It's as if, you know, in the early days of aviation, all the airplanes had flapping wings because when we looked around, that's how everything flew. So everybody that made artificial hearts made them work like Regular hearts, not a bad idea, except for the fact that the cyclic fatigue had an adverse effect on durability. Right now, while we're talking, your heart's beating maybe 80 times a minute. I do a quick calculation. I think it's something like 42 million times a year. No man-made device can do that without breaking because plastic, metal, any material we have is subject to cyclic fatigue, and it'll break. Why doesn't the human heart? Well, same reason bird wings don't. They can heal self-healing properties. Billy's mental arithmetic, far superior to mine, (laughs) it's fair to say. So we're going to get to exactly how they came up with the technological breakthrough that circumnavigated this issue. This is unbelievable. You know, what also really strikes me about this is how well he's able to explain everything. It's quite technical and getting into the nitty gritty of biology. And yet I understand every word that he's saying. Absolutely. And if he can make me understand it, that that is the acid test. And I did say that to him. (laughs) And what he said there makes so much sense about the kind of metaphor he used about flying. It's like we we don't make airplanes with wings that move just because that's what we see. And of course, it's got to be more about the function and what's going to do the job the best, not imitating a natural heart. It totally makes sense. Exactly. In other words, if you try and replicate an actual heart, it will break down. The materials ultimately will have a pretty short self uh, shelf life. So without kind of self-healing properties, you can't have something, he said, that actuates 42 million times a right. year, which is exactly how many times the human heart beats. But then there was a breakthrough. People made artificial hearts that could support someone for a month, maybe even a year, maybe even two years but nothing that would last a lifetime. So all the artificial hearts have been temporary devices while we scramble around and try to find a donor heart and do a heart transplant. 
Right. And that's the way the field was all the way up into the 2000s. Fortunately, there was this brilliant doctor engineer, Rich Wampler, who was down, it was in Egypt doing missionary work. And he saw someone using a rapidly spinning screw to lift water up out of a river. So he had this long spiral. Think about Fuseli pasta. If you imagine a piece of Fuseli pasta spinning in a tube, but make the pasta nine feet long and two feet in diameter and the tube two feet in diameter. This tube they had running up a nine-foot riverbank, and as they rotated it, water lifted out of the river, traveled up the steep incline of the pump and came, of, the, of the bank of the river and came out the other end. And Rich said, wow, if you can use like something like that to move water against gravity, I'll bet you could move blood against pressure. And he came back and talked to my boss. He made a prototype. He made it out of, I mean, originally it had a bondo and stone axes and mahogany. He was a real maker, a real uh, hacker. He then got a jewel, jewelry maker to make a small uh, version of it. He put it in a small tube. He showed it to Bud Frazier and said, look, if you use a motor outside the body to spin a cable and turn this little uh, turbine, this little screw really fast, it'll move fluid. And he showed him how you could put it in a, a gallon of water, turn it on, and all the water sprayed out of the bottle. Frazier put it in a bunch of cows and then in a handful of human patients, and by God, it worked. And that was wow. the first spinning pump in the world. And that uh, Frazier working with industry created a whole field and 60,000 patients now have had turbines implanted in their body to keep their hearts alive. Originally, it was just going to be uh, to keep you alive until you got a transplant. But they realize, uh, extrapolating from what I just talked about, about the pumping sacks with the bags opening, uh, squeezing and relaxing and the valves opening and closing and the mechanism to do that firing and relaxing. This just had one little part spinning on an axis. It didn't wear out. And now there are patients that have been walking around with those in their chest for 15 years. And so right around the time I returned from Boston to work with Bud Frazier, it was largely because he was leading that effort. And that looked like really, really cool work. And he said, Billy, we're going to reinvent the artificial heart. And so he and I came down and worked for 10 years taking Twin turbines, these little turbine pumps that were approved for assisting the heart. And there were several companies now making spinning turbines that would be implanted in the body next to the failing heart that would perform a fraction, a, 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 a half or more of the work of the failing left ventricle. And we said, look, let's try cutting the heart out completely and throwing it away and using two of these turbines one to replace the function of the right heart, one to replace the function of the left heart. And everybody had all the reasons why it wouldn't work and why it was a fool's errand, why we were wasting our time. But as we had cow after cow jogging on treadmills with no pulse and no heartbeat, the number of people that came up with reasons why it wouldn't work started to decrease, culminating in us implanting that twin turbine device in Craig Lewis in 2011. Now, this is uh, utterly fascinating. Yeah, it's really, really. And I was and, still, you know, when he, he spoke for four minutes and then my questions just magnified by a power of about five. Yeah, of course. But also just the simplicity of it. Yeah. 
just boggles the mind. Well, I know, I know. And, and obviously, you, you're thinking to yourself, how is this working? How is a heart, an artificial device, let's not even call it a heart because it wasn't, didn't resemble a heart, how is an artificial device doing the job of a heart in this patient Craig Lewis's body? Uh, in explaining that, uh, Dr. Billy Cohn actually comes full circle, and that is where Daniel Timms's creation comes in. Take a listen. That device had two turbines. Each turbine was basically a motor. There were magnets in the turbine and wound magnet wire around the blood path on the outside. And the wires were uh, electromagnets were energized by computers, which determined how fast each turbine was spinning. So we had two uh, big computers, one hooked to the right turbine, one hooked to the left turbine. And if we set them at the right speed and balance the flow, because the, the right pump has to pump through the lungs. The left pump has to pump through the body. Those are completely different tasks and take completely different pumping characteristics and efficiencies. But using the computers, we could adjust them so they did the right amount of flow. Then that device, Craig Lewis's heart, only had two moving parts. They were both turbines spinning on axles. There were no flexible components, no valves, no mechanisms squeezing and relaxing a lot fewer components to wear out. And in point of fact, we we thought a device like that would last forever. Tragically, Craig Lewis had other challenges. He had liver failure and kidney failure when his liver failure got so bad. But his device had two turbines, two controls, two controllers driving them. And both of the turbines were suspended on gemstone bearings, sort of like in a fine watch a ball of gemstone in a metal cup. Roll forward to Daniel Tim's brilliant device. Now there's just one moving part. And the one moving part is a double-sided rotor. It's a disc, think uh, uh, one quarter thickness of a tuna can. Okay. Okay. Uh, Sort of has the aspect ratio of an Oreo, but it's probably two and a half inches across. And it's got features on one side that when they spin will pump the left-sided blood and features on the other side, the right side, that look kind of like Stonehenge that are going to take the venous blood and pump it to the lungs. And this whole spinning construct is floating in an electromagnetic field, think maglev trains, in a field that's being adjusted 20,000 times a second to keep the device from ever touching anything. And it'll outpump your heart, it'll outpump my heart. There's no mechanical wear because the one moving part never touches anything and the thing works great. How about that? (laughs) There are no words really to describe what's going on in my head right now, but just the idea. So it's like floating in your body. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, as I understand it's it. It's not even, it hasn't it, even really had to be affixed into place. It's it, just it's like floating hi, there. It's like, hyper, is it Hyperloop? Or hyperloop, hi, Megalev, yeah. It's like Hyperloop. That's exactly how I understood it anyway. Now, computer technology has allowed these exceptional minds to take these giant leaps forward, as he explained. 20 years ago, there was no processor that could think fast enough to keep this uh, spinning member levitated 20,000 times a second minor adjustments. Now... Uh, uh, you can buy something that can do that for $10. You know, I mean, the microprocessors have advanced so much uh, with uh, Arduinos and Raspberry Pi and, you know, all these uh, uh, things that you can buy at the, at the hobby store. 
everybody's doing microprocessor controlled things. And this is sort of the culmination of that is leveraging that to, to prolong human life, digital science. And how does this heart doctor um, respond to duress, cardiovascular exercise, if, if, the, if the heart is required to beat in a, in a human, obviously at 170, 180 beats per minute, how does this artificial heart respond to, to, to that? Super great question. So yeah, your heart, when you exercise or when you're in stress and your body says, man, we need more blood flow through the body or cardiac output, as we say, it sends your adrenal glands, the little glands over your kidneys, send adrenaline into the blood, which directly affects the heart. The autonomic nervous system, which are the nerves that you don't control, they are always firing to determine your state of alertness and uh, whether you're doing the fight or flight or whether you're chilling out and digesting your food, those kick in. And the combination of those two agents, the circulating adrenaline and your nervous system, make the heart beat harder and faster. Well, this is a device. How's it going to do that? That spinning member that we described, that double-sided turbine, to keep it floating in space, there's something called a magnetic bearing. Three electromagnets and three sensors that 20,000 times a second look where the thing is in space and micro-adjust the power being given through these three electromagnets to keep it floating and flat. It's a great mechanism for keeping something floating, but it's also a really great sensor. It knows how much power it's having to apply to put uh, the the rotor where it needs to be. Uh, If you take the rotor and every four seconds say, spin a little faster, spin a little faster, spin a little faster, and give it that command every four seconds, it'll do that until it realizes, oh, you know what? I shouldn't spin any faster because now I'm having to use a lot more energy to keep the rotor in place because I'm creating a little bit of a vacuum on this side and it lowers the power again. So you can make it so it's doing that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But then suddenly, stress, exercise, you start running, the veins in your legs clamp down, more blood is going to your chest. It's trying to increase speed every four seconds, like it was doing while you were eating corn chips and watching Planet of the Apes. But now with the increased (laughs) blood, it can start increasing its speed every four seconds, every four seconds, every four seconds. And the speed goes up higher and higher and higher, enabled by the fact that your adrenals still made that adrenaline. They caused the veins to clamp down. There was more blood available. So we'll take a cow and put them on the treadmill. And while we're getting all ready and it's chewing its cud and looking around, its cardiac output is 10 liters a minute, which is more than yours or mine, but it's a cow. But then we turn the electric treadmill on and the cow starts walking and walking faster and faster and faster. And its cardiac output, the blood flow through its body will go to 11 liters, 12 liters, 13, 14, 15, 16 liters a minute without us touching a control or giving any command to the heart. It autonomously increases flow due to this algorithm as blood returns to the, to the chest. 
pretty clever, right? Wow. Yeah, pretty clever. Yeah. We've come full circle in this because I wanted to find out what the future holds for this technology, for this particular medical kind of device uh, practice, if you like. The, the, the research that they've done, the, the strides that they've made forward. He told me that 3D printing has allowed them to refine and perfect the device in an exponentially faster time period. Mm. And he's actually, they've now, now got to a point where they're ready to bring it into mainstream. Right. There is something about it, as he describes it, that sounds almost too good to be true. You know, I am quite intrigued in practice how this yeah, actually works well, out. well, exactly. And it's still, he's a bit circumspect about that. Where are we with this all now? When will the bivacore heart, the artificial heart, take its place alongside transplants in mainstream medicine? If the FDA gives us a nod by the end of this year to do humans, and they'll give us permission to do like five based on our animal work, and if two of those patients have strokes and one of them has to go back to the operating room for bleeding and two of them make it out of the hospital, but they're in and out a lot, people will go, huh, it's neat, but it's not ready for prime time. If all five do great and are discharged home in a couple of weeks and are going to the mall and driving cars, you know, there's, those are two different extremes. I'm sure it'll be somewhere in between those. But if it works reasonably well, then I think that opens aperture for us to be able to put it in desperately ill patients. If the desperately ill patients do okay, then maybe we'll be able to put it in patients that are very sick, but not desperately so. If they do okay, we'll be able to put it in sick patients. And at some point, if the data supports it, there may come a time where patients consider, should I get a transplant or the artificial heart? And who knows, in some future state, maybe no one will want a, a transplant anymore. Now, the wild card is this genetically modified heart. What's going to happen with that science? Is that guy going to be walking around 10 years from now or is he going to reject next week? I hope he's alive 10 years from now. That's wonderful tech, and I wish him all the best. But it's hard to predict the future based on the information we have now. I can tell you this Bivacor device never will wear out, and I've seen it deliver 23 liters of flow. That's like an Olympic athlete in a sprint. You know, I, I joke, and Bud Fraser always rolls his eyes, uh, that at the 2200 Olympics, there's going to be stock and modified. <laughs> yeah. uh, it does provide superhuman function. And if better battery technology and that techno batteries are always getting better, or maybe we run this thing on plutonium or something, if it allowed you to out exercise all uh, unmodified Homo sapiens. And that's hyperbole. Let's just say it makes you as good. How much heart failure would you be okay with? How much huffing and puffing or stopping after one flight of stairs to catch your wind would you tolerate knowing this option was available? The threshold for changing out a bad hip has gotten so low. Why should anybody suffer with a bad hip? Well, maybe someday uh, if you can't walk quickly without getting short of breath, We'll change out your heart. We don't do that with heart transplant because last year there were 3,000 heart transplants. That's the most there's ever been. Usually there's about 2,300. And that's for 400,000 people that are destined to die each year of heart failure. 
we can only affix uh, 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 one in 250 of them or one in 200 of them. So getting a donor heart, getting a transplant is like winning the lottery. You yeah. know, if we had a device, if we had a stack of them on a shelf that, and we could do the surgery in the morning with a fresh team instead of in the middle of the night and going on a Learjet and flying a helicopter and getting it and rushing back and having a second team, the amount of resources used to do a heart transplant are staggering. And it's always in the middle of the night because teams come from all over the United States to harvest the organs from that uh, poor individual who's had a brain uh, injury, who's brain dead, but still has good organs. It's, it's a wonderful a wonderful option and saves lives, but boy, is it labor intensive and cost inefficient. If we had a device in our, you know, hospital supply where we said, Mr. Jones is going to come in Wednesday morning for his artificial heart, then it would be done electively with a fresh A team. It would change the whole, the whole feel and dynamic of heart replacement. We are going to have a lot more from Dr. Billy Cohn. We got a little bit sci-fi after mm. this, so we went a bit off-piste, as we do enjoy doing on Off Script. And we started talking about extending human life right. and whether we're all going to be playing Star Wars in a couple of millennia's time, jetting off at light speed to different planets and therefore needing hearts which last <laughs> a little bit longer than the 90-so years that we get out of them at the moment. But that, to come on a future episode of Off Script. But I can only say a massive thanks to Dr. Billy Cohn of the Tech his heart institute you have outdone yourself robbie with that interview that is one of the most remarkable pieces of content i've listened to in a long while thank you very much well thank you dr billy cohn for sparing the time the off script podcast we hope that you enjoyed this episode please do go ahead and click subscribe you can also check out our other podcasts time capsule or the big interview find it wherever you get your podcasts 